Welcome to the Land Use Podcast, the first episode in nearly five years. My name is Aisha Wu with the Alberta Land Institute, and today we're chatting about zoning. I'd like to start off with a land acknowledgement. The Alberta Land Institute is a research institute based out of the University of Alberta's North Campus. The North Campus is on Treaty 6 territory, which is a traditional gathering place for diverse Indigenous peoples, including the Cree, Blackfoot, Métis, Nakota Sioux, Iroquois, Dene, Ojibwe, Soto, Anishinaabe, Inuit, and many others whose histories, languages, and cultures continue to influence our vibrant community. Last month here in Edmonton, locals were getting fired up about land use. If you're an Edmontonian and you've been paying attention to the news, you may have heard something about the zoning bylaw renewal. On October 23rd, Edmonton City Council passed a new zoning bylaw after a long and involved public hearing, during which hundreds of Edmontonians expressed their support and for some concerns. The bylaw is a major overhaul of Edmonton's zoning laws that will reduce the number of zones in Edmonton and allow more types of housing to be built all over the city. Here with us today is Trevor Illingworth from the City of Edmonton. Trevor, could you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about what you do? My name is Trevor Illingworth. I'm a senior planner with the City of Edmonton's zoning bylaw team. And that generally means that I look after um, the ongoing uh, amendment and maintenance of the zoning bylaw uh, for myself over the past four plus years. It's meant um, being part of the leadership of the renewal of the new uh, zoning bylaw. And so the zoning bylaw renewal itself uh, was broken up into four different projects. It's part of a larger city initiative. Those projects are renewing the bylaw. So that's really just looking after the content itself. And that's what my responsibility has been. And um, in addition, it's been a citywide rezoning to implement the new zones, an implementation project, which is, you know, really taking off now um, to implement the new bylaw, and then a, what we call a technology project, I guess, to implement a new content management system. So a, an online interface for hosting the, the zoning bylaw. So all of that together is within the scope of the zoning bylaw renewal initiative. Okay, so let's start with the basics here. What is zoning? Yeah, so zoning is a um, system of organizing land. It's a tool for how we use land, where development can go, what types of development can it be, how big can it be, um, what's allowed to happen on the land. And so a zoning bylaw or land use bylaw is required by the uh, Municipal Government Act, and it's a tool that all cities have to have, and and it's a, it's a tool of organizing land uses and, you know, the extent to which those those land uses can occur on a piece of land. Are there certain things that the zoning bylaw is better equipped to handle and others that it's not? So just in that introduction, I talked a lot about land use. Zoning is really well equipped to deal with the bigger picture in a way of like how a property gets developed. So things like the setbacks of a, of a building or the height of a building, um, the types of uses and activities that can occur on that piece of land. Those are the types of things that when an applicant comes in with a development application, they'll have a site plan and the site plan can show things like the footprint of that building, and it can show the height of that building, can show the, the design features of the building. Um, those are some of the things that 
when a development planner or development officer takes in the application, they can review those things. Stuff that involves precisely how the building is is constructed, like what are the walls comprised of, for example. It's not the role of, of zoning in the first place. That's the role of the, um, the building code or, or safety code. But also the, the type of information that's available during a development review isn't uh, conducive to that level of detail. And so we are often asked to incorporate certain things that might be a, at a technical level that's not really feasible for zoning. And that's partially an operational thing just because we have the staff in place that are trained to review a certain thing. And partially it's practical. So for example, we've been asked to incorporate certain constraints on like a light source or, or certain ways in which uh, lighting should be calibrated. Um, so again, when that development application comes in and we might get, we might say on, on the site plan, here's where the lighting will be, or, or even in, in terms of a design elevation of a, of a building, you might, might show you kind of like generally in a design form, which way the light is going to be pointed, for example. But it won't tell you like how many lumens is is that light going to be, um, and even if it did, the enforcement of something like that through a development permit is just not practical. It's not feasible. Um, so when we start to get to that level of detail, it can start to pull outside of the realm of of zoning. Sounds like it's kind of better for broad strokes. Yeah, yeah, it works best. It works best with the broad strokes for sure. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, what is so significant about this particular bylaw amendment? So taking it back to the city plan, um, the city plan is the city of Edmonton's municipal development plan. It's intended to guide our development through to a population horizon of, of 2 million over the course of decades. And the zoning bylaw that we currently still have in place up until the end of this year, uh, it has origins well, I don't want to go too far back, but basically the last time it underwent a comprehensive overhaul was in the 1960s. Um, Edmonton was a much smaller city then. And over time, this, and, and it, it has been renewed in some form. There was a consolidation of multiple different bylaws that occurred in around 2000, 2001 as well. But basically it, it maintained the same structure and the same bones as the bylaw from the sixties. And so it's been built upon over time. It has evolved over time through amendments to it, but basically um, the, the structure of it has become very challenging to navigate because it's sort of been pieced together. Um, so over the course of a few years from about 2014, 15 through 2018 or so, um, the city's zoning bylaw team was undergoing a lot of amendments. Basically, every couple of weeks, we were back at council amending something to remove barriers to X. And X might have been, you know, in, in recent past, it's been a lot on sort of supporting new forms of infill, um, helping to remove barriers to different forms of housing in different ways. And it became apparent that if we're always removing barriers to these things, why are so many barriers there in the first place? Like the bylaw was proving to be um, a bit unwieldy and not very resilient to even the, the smallest changes in, say, housing trends or changing business models and so on. So that's really kind of the context in which 
we were sitting just before the city plan got put into place. Um, and then the city plan came in and it's like, okay, now we've got a new municipal development plan that charts a new path for Edmonton that really speaks to supporting a variety of housing forms in all neighborhoods, speaks to supporting new business models. Some of the very things that we were sort of constantly removing barriers to achieve. And so when that came into place, it really started the wheels turning on this project of, well, let's let's renew the zoning bylaw so that it can more easily align with the city plan. It can implement this plan and those, those long-term planning ideas. And it can do so in a way that, you know, hopefully we're, we're not constantly going back uh, to council every two weeks to remove those barriers. That's really kind of the impetus for it and the opportunity to as well look at some of the trends that a lot of cities are grappling with around housing uh, supply and to do what zoning can do to help to address that. That was a big piece of this as well, Um, looking to see how we can support a more diverse uh, supply of housing in all neighbourhoods. Yeah, and it's really gotten a lot of attention uh, locally. Why do you think so many Edmontonians are invested? Yeah, people have been um, invested in this work for a variety of reasons. Um, and and sometimes the same reason that people uh, feel passionately about the bylaw, they maybe arrive at two different conclusions about whether or not they're supportive of the idea. But basically, I mean, when we talk about a change to people's neighborhoods, they can, you know, feel generally one of two ways. Either you might you might feel excited about that idea and you feel that it, it offers opportunity for more neighbors, more variety of different housing choices, opportunities for people to potentially age in place. Um, if a single detached house doesn't meet your sort of long-term needs or even short-term needs, then the idea of potentially seeing uh, new housing forms coming up in the neighborhood can be exciting for some people and increased density in general is an opportunity that can be supportive of more local business, um, can be supportive of schools reaching their thresholds to remain open and thriving. Things like that are some of the reasons why we hear that people are excited about this idea. On the flip side, people get invested in a project like this because it has an impact on, again, for those same reasons, has an impact on uh, the neighborhood and what people can expect to see. And and many people may not be supportive of that. Then people might not want to see a change to what it might be a predominantly single detached house um, form in their neighborhood. And and so the uncertainty of, of that, some people may find alarming. Some people may not want to see that change at all. Um, Some people might feel that the scope of change is maybe too much too fast. And so, you know, I don't want to sort of paint, paint everyone with a broad brush here and say that the comments are uniform. They're certainly not. Um, We've definitely seen a lot of shades of gray in the way that people view this project. But to sum it up in a more concise way, I, I guess I'd say that anytime you have a project that's going to sooner or later, and it's not all going to happen at once, but that has the potential to change one's neighborhood, you're going to get people's interest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I thought we could go over some of the concerns raised during the hearing. Yep. 
So there seemed to be a bit of concern that developers had too much freedom and would continue to uh, build in ways that maximize their profits and that that wouldn't necessarily increase affordable housing. I see a couple points built into that. First is, will the developers try to maximize their profits? I think the answer is yes. I think that that is the intent of a lot of the development industry is to generate profit. What we have to be considerate of here as the city's zoning bylaw team, or really as a planner for the city in general, is what's the outcome that's being achieved by, you know, I'm not interested in helping a developer to maximize their profits. That's not my, that's not my goal. It's not in the public interest. And that's how we have to operate here as, as professional planners. We have to operate in the public interest. And that can mean multiple publics, and that can mean varying different timelines. And so looking at this over a kind of a longer timeline, I'm interested to see how does the development industry build the stuff that is going to help us achieve our long-term goals. If they make profit along the way, fine, that's good for them, and that's their business. That's not my business. So I'm, I'm interested in what's that final built form that gets achieved. And if what has been built uh, by a developer is uh, a small apartment building, if it's a new commercial building, if it's a building that's nicely designed that can contribute to the public realm in that way, then those are the things that as a city planner that I'm interested in. The idea that we're expecting for-profit developers to provide affordable housing it has never been something that we have said. That idea has kind of been injected into the public narrative and has been kind of picked up on and put out there as, I don't know, as a way to illustrate how um, naive we are or something like that. What that narrative misses is that there are for-profit developers. There are also not-for-profit developers. There are housing providers. The same rules that are used by the for-profit developers, like around the height of the building and the setbacks of a building and what dwelling types are allowed, those same rules are also the rules that govern a housing provider or an or a not-for-profit developer. And so what some of the changes do that open up more opportunity for, for housing is give opportunities for those, you know, non-market housing providers to find more locations that they can um, develop affordable housing projects or supportive housing projects, that sort of thing. Those are the things that we're going to see some more benefit in terms of um, affordable housing, because in those cases, if they don't have to go through the rezoning process, or they don't have to get, say, you know, a, a variance to their project, those are the things that can mean the difference between success and failure of a project that might be living on very thin margins. They can't afford often to spend the extra six months in the rezoning or the extra, you know, tens of thousands of dollars that that's going to cost. Or, you know, they can't afford the the risk of that project being possibly appealed or to go through the public hearing process and have people come out against a supportive housing project because, you know, and I, again, I'm not painting people with too broad a brush here. Like there, sometimes through that rezoning process, there can be very valid concerns from a land use perspective. But I think what you often see with affordable housing or supportive housing projects, you do tend to see people come out sometimes 
in opposition because of who will be living there. And that's that's the type of inequitable approach to the planning process that we're trying to avoid through taking a more permissive view of what could be built in really any neighborhood across Edmonton. Right, of course, because you were talking about how, as a planner for the city, you have to act in the people's best interest. That's right. It's looking at what populations might currently not have great representation in the planning process and making sure that the path to achieving, you know, whatever outcomes need to be achieved is at least not hindered by zoning. Now, that's a big part of this too, is knowing that zoning is one tool, but it's not everything. So as we're working on this from a zoning perspective, we're looking at have we removed whatever barriers might be fostering those inequities. It doesn't mean we've removed all the barriers, but it means that we've done what we can as a zoning project to to help. Absolutely. Um, moving on, loss of green space was another concern that came up a few times. Are you able to speak to that? Sure. I mean, loss of green space, I, I think that when people talk about this, again, I just, I'm not 100% sure what people might have in mind because what we said in the zoning bylaw is if we're talking about like an individual lot, setbacks and site coverage are kind of the, the two main tools in the smaller scale uh, context that deal with like how much potential green space or yard space is available on a yard. Those are minimums. Uh, so if somebody wants, if they're building a new development and they want to provide a larger yard because they value that or because the market is there for bigger backyards, they can do that. Nobody's asking you to remove any any yard space. Similarly, with an existing property, you don't have to redevelop your property if you keep your yard. The other thing is site coverage is a big part of this. So site coverage is not proposed to change meaningfully from what's currently allowed in a lot of uh, neighborhoods. There's a, there's a bit of a, a simplification that we've proposed here that will increase the building pocket slightly through site coverage in some neighborhoods. But still, as we're talking about sort of single-digit percentage points here, just a, f- a few percent higher, and that's, again, to provide a bit more flexibility about different housing types. One of the things, though, that we are proposing alongside that is a minimum soft landscaping requirement that basically ensures that a certain percentage of the lot can support plant life. On an individual site basis, those are the types of tools that we use to ensure that there is still adequate green space on any given property. That's really not going to change that much from, from what is currently allowed today. There was a bit of concern that was shared about loss of green space at the neighborhood level or even like district level. Um, that to me was just a bit of a misunderstanding of this this project because we aren't rezoning land to something different than what's in place today. So the closest equivalent zone to what exists today is what they would get in the future. That means that if the neighborhood is currently zoned, um, like if there's a park, for instance, that's currently zoned with a park zone, it will get a park zone with the implementation of the new zoning bylaw. So that's not changing. Uh, so when we're talking about you know, the loss of green space at that level. I don't know where that idea really comes from, except to say that there's other planning processes in place. There's a district planning process. There's a green space strategy that Edmonton has in place called Breathe. Um, Those are the types of tools that the city uses in the bigger picture and in the longer term to guide 
um, the, at Edmonton's green spaces and to ultimately inform, you know, if the city needs to look at land acquisition or something like that to um, support the green space and parks needs of a growing population. So obviously it's not quite a one and done kind of thing. Um, are there any subsequent motions that you want to discuss? Sure. So there there were a number of subsequent motions that came out of the adoption of the new zoning bylaw. Uh, council put forward I think 27 or 28 motions and uh, 19 of them were successful. Uh, a number of them were not necessarily zoning related. And I think council, in my mind, as a whole, generally did a good job of identifying those things that they heard from constituents, that they heard from Edmontonians, um, and ensuring that in some cases, I would say, sent a signal to Edmontonians that yes, these things matter. These concerns are legitimate concerns. And we want to make sure that these things get addressed to things about you know, affordable housing, for instance, um, things about uh, climate. Um, what is the city doing from a from a climate perspective? What they did, though, I think wisely and with, I think, full awareness of the role of zoning versus the role of maybe other other planning tools is to through those motions to to identify where there might be existing work already occurring. Um, or where the, maybe the work wasn't occurring but needs to be initiated or even just enhanced or sped up, I guess, um, in certain ways, and and so made motions to ensure that that happens. So one of the things, affordable housing, there is a body of work going forward already, um, looking at our, our affordable housing policies and a report going ahead to council fairly soon, looking at sort of what are the policy tools that we have in place or that are possible for us to use um, to support our uh, affordable housing goals. So there was a motion that kind of concerned that. And, you know, I think in some cases with these motions, that it's a bit of a signal to the public that, yes, we heard you, uh, but this is this is happening, and we want to make sure that it occurs. Another one is, you know, on climate. There's there's so much work that needs to be done, and the zoning bylaw may play a part in some aspects of that. So what what we have uh, under development right now is a climate change planning and development framework, and what that project is intended to do is to kind of look at the whole development spectrum. And look at the range of different implementation tools that's available. It could be zoning, it could be you know safety codes, it could be a green standard, uh, which which would be like a separate bylaw. Some cities have have chosen to do it that way. It could be something else. It could be plans, strategies, education. Who knows? Um, but the point is to look at the whole spectrum and, and look at the problems that we're facing and go, okay, this tool is going to be used to address this issue. This this other tool is going to be used to address this other issue. And then map out what are some of the implementation mechanisms that need to occur to make that happen. Because it's easy for us, I'm going to say, in, in a lot of cases, to just write a rule into the zoning bylaw to say, like, this has to happen. As a regulatory tool, you can come up with a rule that's quantitative and that looks good on paper. But there's a whole lot behind that rule that is kind of invisible to a lot of people. That being, you know, how does it get implemented? I used the example earlier about the light source. You know, you could have a rule about like the, every light must be, you know, this many lumens as a maximum or something like that. But if you don't have the 
people in place to review and ensure that that actually gets executed the way it's meant to. And if you don't have the infrastructure systems in place, like, you know, EPCOR has the has the appropriate power supply to make sure that that occurs. Like those are the things that actually have to happen for any regulation to be successful and to actually be implementable. And so a project like this planning and development framework needs to, again, look at that whole development spectrum and look at the ways in which different barriers, again, I'm talking a lot about barriers being removed, um, look at the ways in which the barriers can be removed to ensuring that those outcomes can be achieved and that they're going to be successful. And so at the end of that analysis, and I'm not sure, like I, I'm really interested to see how this how this work goes, because I think we need to do it. We need to do it quickly. And uh, the city is taking this, I think, pretty seriously. And so we need to look and see what this work reveals about the changes that need to be made and where changes to zoning are part of the solution. We will be there and we'll be ready to implement that. You know, one of the things that came up um, throughout the course of this work was this idea that the zoning bylaw renewal had to do all of the things all at once. And what I think that sometimes people might have missed through this process is the fact that a zoning bylaw is a living document. It can be updated over time. Um, we can make changes as early as early 2024 if we need to, to update it and make sure that it's, it's reflecting our current needs. And as that applies to something like this climate change planning and development framework, yeah, like we can, we can make those changes as soon as we've got the implementation side of it sorted out. Thanks, Trevor. I won't take up too much more of your time, but is there anything else you wanted to mention before we finish up here? I'll just say the level of participation of the public throughout the whole past several years that we've been working on this and culminating in quite a long public hearing that 293 people signed up. Um, I don't know if all of them ended up speaking because um, unfortunately, because of the length of the hearing, some people did did sort of drop out. But um, by numbers, I think it was something like 134 people there in support and 159 or 58 or something um, in opposition. The fact that it's even close is pretty remarkable for a long-term planning document. A lot of times, and, and really for public participation in really any um, aspect of, of city management is generally skewed towards um, people coming in, in opposition. Um, that's, that's just, we see that in almost everything. Um, when people are concerned about a thing, they tend to show up more than when they are unconcerned about a thing or even supportive of a thing. So the fact that we had 134 people come out and either come out or at least sign up um, for uh, to, to speak or show their, their support for this work, um, I thought was amazing and amazing indication of an appetite for change in the city um, and an appetite that, you know, for, for the idea that we could do better, um, that there are some, that we don't have to just accept, um, you know, neighborhoods filled with single detached houses forever, um, that there's, that there's other ways that people can envision their city growing. And, um, you know, like that, that to me was really inspiring. 
I might be accused of cherry picking for just highlighting those that are there in support. I, I also appreciate those who have concerns, especially for those folks who came out and had really specific items that indicate that they were well informed, that they had taken the time to exercise their civic duty and their voice. You have to appreciate that as well, even if it even if they are there in opposition. And that is it for this episode of the Land Use Podcast. Thank you so much, Trevor, for your time. Make sure to check back in next month for our next episode and follow us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn for updates. Thank you so much. See you next time.